Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 12, The Sky. We boarded a 6 a.m. flight from Osaka International Airport to Sapporo, Hokkaido. I needed rest, but my mind refused to let go. First, there was the strategizing, having to place my mind inside Nakamura's mind and anticipate, and then intercept his moves had been difficult. Certain thoughts that had occurred to me while reading Never Surrender and Peculiar People, the book on Japanese culture, stood out in my mind prominently. Then there were the comments of each person I had spoken to, piecing the history and culture together with Nakamura's profile and bits and pieces of what Akimi's acquaintances and closest friends had revealed knowingly and unknowingly was complex. I was realizing and learning the hard way that thinking is a strenuous activity. The same way I could achieve 300 push-ups, 100 pull-ups, and an infinite number of sit-ups, thinking took up time and a massive amount of mental energy. The same way exercising uses muscles and burns fat, thinking is hard work that burned up brain cells and hopefully resulted in eliminating burdens and bringing victory. I became conscious also that thinking occurs on various levels. There are some thoughts that are too heavy, some thoughts that torture, some thoughts that make the soul shake. My mind maneuvered to shift thoughts into positions that were bearable for me. When packing a grocery bag, you wouldn't put the soft and perishable items on the bottom and the heavy packaged items on the top. I used the same method when storing my thoughts. The heavy, burdensome, torturous, and unbearable thoughts I pushed below and beneath all others It had to be this way. If I kept my heaviest thoughts on top and directly in my mind's eye, something would crack. Separate from the strategizing was the financial matter. I was experiencing firsthand a rich opponent who could burn out a rival simply by making the battle so expensive that he couldn't afford to continue the fight. I was more mindful now of my paper. My money stack was still heavy, but was slowly dwindling under the weight of Japanese prices, which were five times the average American price and 15 times the average Sudanese cost of things. And I was learning that some items in Japan that I paid five times more for gave me four times less. I wanted to organize my receipts, but Chiasa's face was lying against my stomach now. If I began moving, I would awaken her. So 
I collated rough numbers in my mind. I had paid out 275 American to the Hyatt, which amounted to 75 per night. It was a discounted rate because Chiasa held a Red Cross membership card. Then there were the room taxes and her bike rental. I paid 300 American for Chiasa's round trip Tokyo to Kyoto Shinkansen train ticket. I paid about 125 total in taxi fees. I paid 1,000 American total for two round trip Osaka Hokkaido plane tickets. The binoculars with the other supplies came to about 500. Daily food expenses for us totaled to about 200. And Chiasa's fee was rounded to 30,000 yen. I calculated in my head down 3,000 in one week. There was 7,000 remaining and whatever jewels I carted with me strictly for an extreme and strapped situation. Of course, I knew that I was into an extra week with Chiasa's services. She would issue a new charge. That money I was paying her was minor compared to the mental cost that her presence extracted from me. But then again, her presence had also spared me a lot of confusion, grief, and vulnerability. She had sped up my mission as though I had previously been riding on a donkey and she pulled up in her Porsche or Lamborghini or, fuck it, in her jet flashing her pilot's license. As the plane descended, the mountains came into view. In the midst of spring, some of the tops were still capped in snow. I was relieved that we were arriving safely at 8.30 a.m., a half an hour before business officially opened in Japan. By announcing to Himawari that I would leave Kyoto that same night and return to, to, return to New York the following morning, I believed I had burned my trail. To be certain that I had burned it, Chiasa and I left separately from the Hyatt and took separate cabs to Kyoto Station if anybody had been lurking, creeping, and watching like the game-faced Japanese seemed to tend to do, they would have been convinced of my departure. I had to assume that Himawati and her six invisibles would run about talking me up. If she ended up speaking with Shata or anyone from the Nakamura family or estate, she would explain that I had bowed out and gone back to Brooklyn, and that's what I wanted her to say. By actually leaving Kyoto late at night by cab, riding to nearby Osaka and boarding the first flight to Hokkaido, and arriving before the opening of business, I knew Nakamura or whoever in his employ he had assigned to keep track of my whereabouts would be baffled about my movements. I would land in Hokkaido, without raising any suspicions. I wanted Nakamura to feel content that his nefarious plans, nefarious, nefarious, plans were still working. In fact, nefarious was a word I had learned while I was reading about him. The author referred to Nakamura this way. I circled the word and looked it up. The more I considered 
the moves he'd been making against me and my wife and our marriage, the more I agreed that the adjective nefarious fit him nicely. We sat in the corner on the floor at the airport with our belongings and our Hokkaido map unfolded and pulled all the way open. As we both checked out the fine lines, paths and trails and symbols of the map, Chiasa said, I've only been to Hokkaido once. It was winter and it was impossibly beautiful and difficult, I thought. Impossibly beautiful was a strange description, so I repeated it. She looked up from our map and said excitedly, Yes, there was almost 15 feet of snow up here. I could have stood on top of my own head and stretched and still wouldn't be as tall as the snow pile. My father loved it. He drove me up and down those hills, speeding on a super fast snowmobile. It was so much fun. I wished it would be winter all the time, and instead of cars, everyone would be traveling that way. Of course, my mother just kept warning about avalanches and how we would both be buried alive. I think you're telling me, indirectly, that you don't know your way around out here. I called her out while moving her to focus on our situation at hand. She smiled. I speak Japanese and also that's why we have a map, she said eagerly. What I can tell you is that this place is the opposite of Tokyo. Here in Hokkaido, there's a small population of people spread over a huge amount of land. Of course, Tokyo is a small area of land crunched with a gazillion people. She paused and suddenly turned serious, looking more closely at the map. The exact address of Akimi's grandmother's house doesn't really show up on the map, but we know it's in the area of the Hidaka Mountains. At least that's what Joe said. But then again, she and Akimi have never been there before either. Write the address out in English for me, the one from the mailing label, I told her, and handed over my pocket notebook. She wrote, first in kanji, then in English. She then spoke out the kanji meanings for Hidaka Mountains, sun, high, mountain, pulse, and the name of the place where the sculptures were being delivered was Serenity Fields. The name made me more curious. I looked closely at the map. Although it was in Japanese, I could measure the distances between towns and cities and parks and mountain ranges and so on. It looks like a long trip. We'll be traveling the entire day, I told her, looking up from the map. We should have flown into Aishikawa Airport instead of Sapporo, I pointed out to Chiasa. It's closer to the Hidaka Mountains, and at least there is a town there. The way this map reads, from here in Sapporo, we'll be on a crazy long trek to reach Hidaka. And as we approach the mountains from this side, there's no cities or towns after this point. I showed her exactly where the route veered off into mostly wilderness. She checked it out my fault. I just got my hands on the map of Hokkaido when we got here, she said softly. 
Then she cheered up instantly and proudly announced, Japanese people will help us as we go along. You'll see, we tend to be polite this way. Chiasa excused herself, grabbed hold of her backpack, and went to the ladies' room. I remained, keeping watch over the rest of our stuff and studying the map. When I looked up, she was wearing her high school uniform, the hiked-up mini, tight blouse that lay across her full breast, bare legs, socks, and penny loafers. I know you don't like me to wear this uniform, but... Like I said, all over Japan, a high school girl in a uniform can get anything she wants. Think of this as my business suit or costume, she said. I wouldn't look at her purposely. My sensei taught me that a ninja has to subvert her ego, Chiasa tried to persuade me. Subvert her ego? I repeated, yes. According to Sensei, long ago, ninjas disguised themselves as poor farmers. Or a male ninja might have had to disguise himself as a local woman, or a female ninja might disguise herself as a man. Oh yeah, I said, and listened halfway. And if you are really handsome and well-dressed and a cool-ass, super-skilled ninja with killer instincts... You might think you're too much to put on a lowly, humble costume or to play dumb and stupid or deaf and mute. But if your desire for victory outweighs your ego or just the proud way that you view yourself, then you can do whatever it takes, she said solemnly. She was accurate about one thing. I could never view myself dressed as a woman, nor could I respect any man who modeled himself after a woman for any reason. For me, man is man, woman is woman, both created from Allah equally, but with different purposes and parts and appearances and roles in life. I could on second thought rock a clever costume, something strategic and even inexpensive, but definitely made for a man. Our ride from the airport was 90 minutes long with stops along the way. I caught some sleep. In fact, I slept through the entire journey. The problem was, Chiasa did also. Deep in a dream that instantly evaporated, I heard a voice repeating itself. We lifted our own heads to find a four and a half foot short bus driver standing over us. He spoke in Japanese. I didn't need a translation. The bus was empty, and it was easy to deduce that this was the last stop on his route. Chiasa jumped up, just missing the metal rack above her, and bowed her head from her inside seat. She began a conversation with him. She opened the map. He said something which I couldn't understand, then bowed his head and turned to go back down the aisle to his position. We collected our belongings and exited. Immediately the bus, you turned and sped away, standing on a dirt road at 10.30 a.m., surrounded by corn stalks, not yet ripened. I looked at Chiasa. We'll catch a ride from out here. 
There are no more buses on this route, she said. I pulled out my compass as I began looking around for directional signs. There were none. We are headed north. So, let's walk this way, I told Chiasa. We began walking while strapping on our backpacks. Hers was heavier than mine since she couldn't part with a lot of her stuff. I had easily left several items in lockers. Give me your backpack, I told her. She looked at me like she wanted to refuse, and then she softened and handed it over. Still, she had a pack strapped around her waistline and her canteen strapped across her shoulder and riding nicely on her right hip. You see the truck tracks, she said, pointing at the dirt road. Someone will come along soon. Forty minutes in, a pink pickup truck appeared. It was approaching us as we both walked backward watching it. Chiasa began waving her hands to slow it down and bowed her head when it halted three feet in front of her. There were two Japanese men inside a cabin that fit three persons. The driver was old, but the man seated beside him was much older. Riding in the back of the truck was one goat and a stack of caged animals that I could not view closely from where I was standing. Chiasa spoke as I stood still behind her, watching. The Japanese driver stepped out and ran around and opened the passenger door for Chiasa to be seated beside them. I grabbed her hand before she made one move. They will take us up 45 miles. I think we should get in, she advised. You sit in the back, I told her, as she stared at the elderly man holding the passenger door door open. They're probably very afraid of you, she said softly. We'll both sit in the back, I told her. Chiasa moved toward the passenger door, bowing her head nonstop. She spoke very politely. I recognized her apologizing in between every other sentence. Sumimasen, sumimasen. The driver seemed to accept, walked to the back of his truck, and lowered the bed. I helped her into the bed. She got on, and I handed her her backpack, and then mine, and climbed on also. The driver closed the bed and returned to his position, and they pulled off. There were chickens, each in an individual cage. There were five rows of five of the birds pushed against the wall behind the front cabin. The bearded and horned goat stared at me shamelessly with his huge, dark brown eyes. The driver was suspicious of me. I was suspicious of the driver. The passenger was suspicious of me. I was suspicious of the passenger. The goat was suspicious of me, and I was suspicious of him, too. This is how it goes with the male species. But the goat was roped around the neck and anchored to the truck floor. In many ways, I understood that trapped feeling. Yet, he was in a much more critical battle than I was. A type of animal heaven or hell. Either he was being taken to mate with the lady goats or he would end up sliced and sizzling on the grill. You see, 
my school uniform worked, Chiasa announced. It has neutralizing powers. I don't think you realize how strong you look with your height and those shoulders and that chest and these arms and your eyes. She was using her hands to gesture. All I know is that without this costume, we would have been walking forever, she concluded, exhaling. I didn't speak on it. I thought that she also did not know how powerful her body looked in that tiny uniform. Or maybe she did, and that was her point. It was a rough ride at about 45 slow miles per hour for a 45-mile distance. The Hokkaido spring air was less warm than in Kyoto and Tokyo, but wasn't cold or uncomfortable. As the breeze soothed me, I watched Chiasa plucking feathers off one of the chickens, her slim fingers working rhythmically right through the cage opening. After she gathered them, she pulled out some napkins and gently laid the feathers inside and carefully placed them right in her waist pack. When the truck slowed and then pulled to the side of the road, the older guy in the passenger seat got out instead of the driver. He lowered the back door and I jumped off. Chiasa handed me both backpacks and then she jumped off the bed. The elder man began speaking to her, never changing his eye contact from her face. He didn't seem to even acknowledge or notice my presence. However, I was growing accustomed to their brand of ignoring. He had to be about 109 years old with skin like leather and tobacco-stained teeth. Gazing through slightly clouded eyes, he pointed into the forest, speaking slowly and carefully. When the talking between them ceased, I held out a 10,000 yen note to pay him for his trouble. That caught his eye. Chiasa looked at me and began bowing to the elderly man. Gently, she took the note from my hand and used both her hands to present it to him with her head bowed again. I could see that there was even a ritual that a person needed to perform just to make a payment. I was glad that she was there to do it. I wouldn't. Chiasa was still bowing when the truck pulled off. He said that it's through there. Chiasa pointed at the forest. He said that we should walk and walk and walk some more. Then he said that we should climb and climb and climb some more. After climbing, he said we should walk and walk and walk some more until we get there. I was pressing the numbers of his license plates into my mind before writing them down in my notebook for no known reason. He's from this area. I believe him, Chiasa said, completely assured. Did you ask him if this was the only route, I questioned? Of course. He said that this is the quickest route on foot and that we shouldn't expect anyone to show up out here to offer us a ride. He said that his son had already driven us much further out than they had planned to travel. He said, sometimes foreigners come this far out because they're crazy and looking for adventure or because they're just lost. 
we're not lost, I said confidently, but it's good if he thinks we are. Chiasa removed her backpack and leaned it, leaned it against a nearby tree. Then she unzipped her waist pack and pulled out her azuken. She shook it like a woman shakes sheets before placing them on a clothesline. Here, hold this up just like this, she asked me. I held her two meters of black material. Now, look the other way until I say hi. Okay? She requested. Okay, I told her, turning my head from her direction. I heard her moving around feverishly, unzipping her skirt, unbuttoning her blouse, digging through her backpack. I was glad to know she was doing away with the schoolgirl uniform. Then I felt her fingers as she placed them beside mine as I held up her, zir- her zukin. Hi, she finally said. Okay, I said you could look now. She was dressed in an olive green long-sleeved t-shirt and green cargo pants, which she tied at her ankle with a drawstring over her long tube socks. She was wearing beef and broccoli timberlands and looked like the leaves of the tree that she stood in front of. Now my backpack is much lighter, she announced as she wrapped her green champion hoodie by the sleeves around her waist just below her waist pack. Seven minutes more, that's all I need, she said, as she spread her zukin over some scattered grass like a small picnic blanket and went back into her backpack pockets. Removing a pocket knife, a leather tube, some cylinder-shaped film containers, a small, flat, rectangular case that could fit in the palm of her hand, and three different types and sizes of string, all nicely tied into very loose knots. She also had a three-inch pair of scissors, a few swaths of linen, and her chicken feathers. She laid each of the items on her zukin like a surgeon might lay his tools out before performing surgery. As she unzipped her circular leather tube, I remembered how Akimi used to carry her artwork slung over her shoulder and rolled inside a tube twice the length of the one Chiasa had. But Chiasa didn't have artwork in hers. I watched intently as she pulled out seven thin, one-and-a-half-foot-long, sturdy bamboo sticks. As she sliced them slightly at both ends using her pocket knife, she said, You know, there are bears here in Hokkaido. I know I told you that there were bears in Yoyogi Park back in Tokyo. There have been a couple of sightings over the years, but I was mostly joking. This time, I'm not. She opened the small rectangular case. Inside were needles. She removed them one at a time and placed these needles in the top of each of the seven bamboo sticks. With the three-inch pair of scissors, she cut the linen. She opened a film canister and dipped the linen into a liquid it held. She wrapped the linen in a way that now concealed one of the needles and tied some string to hold it on. She repeated the same process for each of the seven sticks. Next, she placed one chicken feather 
on the back end of each of the sticks into the slot that she had sliced with her pocket knife and used more thin thread to tie and hold it on. As she removed a sturdy and buffed and glossy mahogany stick from the leather tube, I was certain that she was constructing a bow for her arrows. The bow was small, much smaller than her seven-foot Kyudo bow that she had cased up in Narita Airport when we first met, and that I later saw standing in her storage shed at her grandfather's home. But as she strung it just right, I knew it was still a deadly weapon. She placed the completed bow onto her zukin and placed the arrows back into the leather tube. I like bears. This won't kill them, but it will stop them and drop them into an instant hibernation. While that sucker is asleep, we'll make our getaway, she said softly. Chiasa began removing more items from her backpack, including my wife's diary, which she slid into her back pocket, some panties, which she folded tightly to keep them out of my eyesight and placed into her front pocket, some handcuffs, two tight tees, one bra, and her slingshot. She held four rocks like they were coins, then stuffed them in her front pocket. When finally her pack was almost empty, she pulled out a new folded plastic trash bag, dropped her entire backpack inside, and said, Let's bury it here. Yo, I was laughing on the inside, but I didn't crack a smile. With her portable shovel, I dug her a quick ditch. She washed the dirt off our hands with water from one of her two canteens. She picked up her bow and leaned it on a tree, grabbed her zookin off the grass, shook it out one more time, folded it nicely, and unzipped her waist pack. She removed a small can from her waist pack and put the folded zookin back inside, zipping the waist pack closed. She marked the tree where her pack was buried with a wicked-looking kanji in pink fluorescent spray paint. What does it say, I asked tree she responded it doesn't give away any information but still we'll know we've marked our trail it glows in the dark she said she picked up her bow and wore it on her back she slid her knife into a rough leather case and strapped it around her calf i'm ready now she said she had gone from traveling heavy to traveling light now her hands were completely free I liked that she anticipated a war. Maybe she even craved it, welcomed it, needed it. Do you want to navigate or should I? She asked me comfortably like she was good either way and just as happy to follow. I'll navigate, you translate, I told her. After all, that was our original arrangement. I opened our map. She had already placed a mark on our destination area. It's 
23 miles away, eight of them are wilderness, 10 are mountains, and five are fields. Come close, I instructed her. We'll follow this trail. I pointed on the map. I was reading the map by measurements, colors, and symbols. Chiasa, of course, could decipher the name of each area by reading the kanji. I checked my compass. As I folded the map back up and put it in my front pocket, Chiasa said, Did you know that snakes can't close their eyes? Never thought about it, I told her truthfully. But they can sleep, so if you see one with his eyes open, he could be asleep or awake. True, but the art of the snake is to make sure that you don't see him. And even if you think you can see him, he'll camouflage and bend to fill your head with doubts as he either strikes or slips away. She had a thoughtful look on her face. Then she smiled and stared at me simultaneously. I'm wearing indigo. Snakes don't like indigo. So they'll stay away. Oh yeah? It would be best to hope they stay away while expecting them to appear. Snakes don't like people. They'd rather not encounter any of us, she said. Then she asked me, Did you grow up in the countryside or something? I have a little experience with the wilderness. I was vague while reminiscing on my summers in my southern Sudanese grandfather's village, the best training a young, young male could receive. We were accustomed to the cobra and the mighty lion, but we did not fear them. Neither did our father or our father's father. Me too, comrade, she said. We walked at an even pace. Previously, Chiasa had said that her goal was to be a mercenary soldier. I had looked up the word mercenary and found that Chiasa wanted to be a soldier who fights for hire. She wouldn't mind being dropped in the middle of a war. Fully trained and equipped, if the mission paid properly, she was game for it. She felt like more than a mercenary in it for the money to me. She might be a soldier, I thought to myself, but she's still a woman, and women are ruled by their emotions my father had taught me long ago. Comrade, let's move. If we keep a swift pace, we can get through the forest and climb up and then down the other side of the mountain by sunset, I told her. Our wilderness walk was peaceful and natural. For Chiasa, it was home, I imagined. She had experienced this for a while living inside Yoyogi Park. However, the forest we found ourselves in now was not tame. No company or government had rolled through with its team of loggers, mowers, and pruners to make this area into a beautiful picnic place. Every plant, tree, bush, and creature did what Allah said it to do. 
We did not encounter other humans. We listened to the sound of our own breathing, the songs of the kikaras and birds of every colorful, amazing kind. We heard and caught glimpse of the sneaky, swift steps of the squirrels, the shake of the trees when the monkeys played and leaped, the gorgeous eyes of the deer mesmerized us. We were startled by the elk's antlers as they moved away from the branches that had shaded them. For a while, Chiasa watched the path of our feet for sudden streams and water holes. I watched straight ahead and side to side, and then we would switch duties. Her father must have really wanted to hide her from you, Chiasa said suddenly after more than seven miles of silence. I'm happy that you allowed me to read her diary. If I hadn't by now, I would have believed that you were concealing something from me. I would have doubted you. With her father reacting this way, I would have thought that you had hurt her somehow and were here in Japan trying to make up. But I read her diary. Every word was from a woman's hand and heart. And every woman wants to be loved the way that Akimi writes that you were loving her. Chiasa was speaking as we walked. Our eyes did not meet. I did not respond. But it was sweet to hear her voice and listen to her thoughts being added to nature's chorus in an otherwise silent and unpopulated place. Eight miles through the wilderness took us three hours to complete. As we approached the clearing at the foot of the mountains, I calculated it would take us five hours to clear the climb, which would be much different from walking an old trail through the untamed but level woods. I think you should consider drinking some water, I told Giasa. It's not even hot here in Hokkaido. The breeze is nice, she said. That's because we're standing in the shade of all these trees, I explained. The mountain will be different. I'll drink when you drink, she challenged. We both refused and began our climb up the mountains and into the pulse of the sun. As we got higher, the air thinned out. Our pace was slower than when we were in the woods. The climb was more rigorous. Our breathing patterns changed. When Chiasa's steps paused, I turned to her. We were hundreds of feet in the air on a narrow path that could only accommodate two people walking side by side. Two droplets of blood fell from Chiasa's nose. She placed her fingers beneath her nostrils and drew them back. Her eyebrows lifted and both eyes widened at the sight of her own blood, but only for a fraction of a second. Rapidly, she unzipped her waist pack and pulled out a piece of folded brown paper bag. She ripped it into strips. She wet it with water from her canteen and folded it over, wetting each fold. She placed the moist, folded brown paper underneath her top lip and laid over her gums. By this time, I was pressing her nostrils together to stop the slow bleed. I'll be fine. Atasha taught me this way, she murmured through her papered lips. The bleeding will stop in less than one minute. You'll see. We were face to face. 
her big eyes staring into mine with full determination, her long eyelashes nearly grazing my skin. Her mouth was closed now with the brown paper placed inside. I released her nose. Drink water, I scolded her. She refused with a simple blank stare and no attitude. Her nose ceased bleeding a minute and a half later. Do you feel dizzy, I asked her, as she soon removed the soaked strip of paper from her mouth. No, I'm not dizzy, she answered. Somehow, I knew she wouldn't tell me even if she was. Let's go, I told her. But I was bent on locating a place for her to rest. It was the seventh day of Ramadan. Circumstances had taken away my chance to return to my Ummah. My opportunity to play in last night's game at the Hustlers League, my scheduled flight home, and perhaps had even caused me to be fired from my job at Joe's, where I had built up a flawless trust. Still, Allah gave us rain on a sundry mountain. Although the sky remained white with sunlight, and with barely any visible darkened clouds, the rain began as a mist and turned into a shower, the droplets cooling our skin and moistening Chiasa's lips. As we looked at each other in mutual amazement, we both smiled and then laughed. Thankfully, I located a ledge We both squatted beneath it as the shower thickened. We were shielded, but she was probably as concerned as I was about what now would be five remaining miles of slippery rocks over steep cliffs and what had evolved into a downpour. When I open my company, I'll remember to charge more if the mission involves mountains. She looked at me and smiled. I'll make a menu like the ones you get in an expensive restaurant. It will list every possibility. Mountains, murder, avalanche, glaciers, kidnapping, and whatever else. She laughed lightly. I laughed too. Since you are my first customer, you got the greatest deal. No one else will get from me what you're getting. In fact, your mission involves everything on the menu, doesn't it? She asked me. I didn't answer. We just looked at one another. My business cards will be so fucking cool, she continued. I'm not going to have my name printed on them. They will be made of expensive black paper with just a few tiny silver drawings, an airplane, a boat, a motorcycle, and a truck, and a contact number and a motto, she said, as though she was making all these creative decisions right then beneath the mountain ledge in the rain. What's the motto, I asked. Fighting, she said eagerly. I think you're going to confuse your customers. How? First of all, A potential customer sees a beautiful girl, I said instinctively, then I stopped. She was looking directly at me with an emotion in her eyes. Nah, I'm saying when a customer sees a woman, he isn't going to think of fighting. 
When he looks at your card and sees an airplane, he's not going to put two and two together and know that you're the pilot. A man is not going to look at you and connect up these things. So you need a better business card, I explained, knowing I wasn't sounding too smooth. What will a man think then when he looks at me, she asked. Here comes the sun. Hopefully the rocks will dry out quickly so we can get moving, I said. Hopefully, she said, softly. Half an hour later, we were still squatting there, waiting. Why, Chiasa, I asked her. I had been curious about her name since I first heard it on the flight from New York. I didn't ask her sooner because I didn't want her to start asking me the same kind of questions. Now I felt more at ease, so I asked it's a bitter reason, she said. Bitter, I repeated. Yes, I wish my name was given to me for a sweeter purpose, she said softly. It was my grandmother who first spoke this name. When my parents were in love and planned to marry, my Japanese grandmother was completely against it. She had a way with words. You could say she was like a mean-ass evil poet. Chiasa frowned. Before I was born, she told my parents, Your marriage will never last even 1,000 mornings. Well, 1,000 mornings is about two years and 270 days, I interrupted her. About two and three quarters years. So, Okasan, my mother, decided to name me Chiasa, the kanji meaning 1,000 mornings. My mom thought she would prove her mother's words and prediction wrong. And your father agreed on that name, I asked. Chiasa came from my grandmother. Hayoku came from my grandfather. It's his last name. And Brown came from my father. That's his last name. She spoke proudly, and then her voice trailed off, I suspected because, in her excited recall, she had revealed more to me than she had planned to. What's the meaning of Chiasa Hayoku? I asked, still curious. One thousand mornings, wings of fire, she said, as she pretended she was drawing the kanji midair with her finger. And Brown, of course, is an African-American surname, which we both know has no meaning, although Aunt Tasha would say that it is a reminder that we were enslaved and it is the name of the motherfuckers who were previously our white owners. Chiasa Hayoku Brown, I repeated slowly. It might have started off bitter, but the name is dope. It fits you well, I assured her. And she smiled. I wondered if her Japanese grandmother was still alive. And if so, where she was living, I didn't ask, though. Me and my grandmother are having hankuki, so we don't speak to one another. When I see her, I just bow respectfully. That's it, she said, without seeming regretful. You saw her, you know, Jiasa informed me. Where, I asked, and when? Remember my grandfather's bicycle shop, she asked me. Yeah. Well, she 
owns the candy shop next door. It's so small you could miss it. But I went inside and you waited for me outside the door. She was the old woman in there in that cubicle surrounded by sweet candy on her left and right and sweets hanging over her head. She's only 70 and she's got a hundred wrinkles already. Japanese elders usually keep smooth skin because we eat well. I think her wrinkles got nothing to do with her age. It's just her wickedness. She doesn't even have a cash register in her store, but kids come in and buy 30 things, and her little wrinkled fingers move swifter than a wizard on her abacus, the same one she's been using for 60 years. Chiasa was working herself into an angry memory, so I didn't add to it. Imagine a witch surrounded by sugar and spice and toys who's so bitter and hates kids. Enough, I said solemnly. She paused. We should stretch and start climbing again, I told her. Sumimasen. Sorry, she said softly. But I know you saw her. You put your face to the candy store window and looked in. I saw you, Chiasa said. I did. I agreed with her. I wanted to end it for Chiasa since my questions had begun it in the first place. I could feel the pain easing through her words and pores. As we descended the mountain, the sun descended as well. We shouldn't do the fields in the dark, Chiasa warned. Are you afraid of the snakes? If they come, I'll catch them and kill them. Don't worry, I promised her. It's not a fear. It's a distrust and dislike. There's a difference, you know, between the three. I looked around. There was nothing but nine and a half miles of mountains behind us and a half a mile of mountains in front of us. We faced five miles of fields. I stood, thinking. Don't think about leaving me, Chiasa said. I smiled. Why, soldier, are you afraid of the dark? I asked her. No. I have no fear of the dark. Since we are here together, and we are comrades, we should either stay together or move together for as long as the strategic circumstances allow. Besides, a good soldier does not place herself in unnecessary danger. There could be a deep well in those fields, open water, a septic area in the dark we wouldn't detect properly. In this case, sunrise is on our side. She gave me her best military response. True, two is better than one, I confirmed. She relaxed a bit. And sunrise is more manageable than nightfall in this particular case. Here's my plan. I explained it to her. On the back side of a blue barn with a slanted roof, Chiasa and I began our meal. The moon was far from full and cast a clear but dim light. What the moon did not do, the stars did. They were scattered beautifully and lit brilliantly like sparklers. I had captured this location in the powerful lens of my binoculars, knowing that somewhere in these fields there had to be a tool shed, a dairy barn, chicken coop, or some place where we could chill 
and there would be no threat because the owner's day's work had already been completed. We were not beneath any trees or beside any high wall. Out in the distance about a half mile across the field, there was a house. Although I had seen it when I first scouted the area, I could not see it any more, which meant that they could not see us either, and that was our objective. I didn't have many choices, but I was convinced that this was the place that would make Chiasa feel most comfortable, way up high where the snakes would not slither in search of heated holes to slide in. When we first entered it, the dairy barn did not have a scent. Point blank, it just stunk. Yet, it was a shelter for the night. There were some murmurs and mooing and excitement among the four-legged creatures at first. But Chiasa and I climbed to the second level where the stacks of hay were stored. With our backpacks off, we lay there resting on the hay for a moment in silence. Our muscles sore from the extreme hike. I aimed my pin light and surveyed the ceiling where I did find an opening. I told Chiasa to climb onto my shoulders. I held still, balancing her five-seven frame. With her arms extended upward, she was able to lift the rectangular wooden cutout that led to the roof. The design was simple, nothing extraordinary like the hydraulic sunroof at Akimi's Rapongi house. Chiasa took the risk without warning, jumped and caught hold of the opening and pulled herself through. I threw her beef and broccolis to her. I tossed my backpack up three times before she caught hold of it. I was laughing some, just thinking about how I was going to get up there. About five seconds later, I built a makeshift staircase ladder out of six stacks of hay and climbed up. Chiasa handed me an antiseptic wet napkin sealed in a packet. She cleaned her hands and I cleaned mine. Pouring some water from my canteen into my cleaned palms, I doused my face and cleaned my nose. She sat silently, accustomed by now to my prayer. I bowed down beneath the dimly lit sky. When my prayer was completed, she was there, waiting with water. Ready? Let's drink together. She held up her canteen and I, and I held mine as we both drank our first swallows after a long, tough day. Did you kill it, I asked, as I saw her canteen tilted toward her face. I was real thirsty, she said. You want some more, I asked her. You can get some of mine. No, I had enough. I'm going to wait 10 minutes before I eat anything. I'll let my stomach settle. I think I'm losing weight on this mission. I crave the water, but somehow, as the days pass, I crave less and less food. But I've never felt better. Let's sleep out here, she added. The temperature is going to drop, I warned her. You have your sleeping bag, she pointed out, always wanting to let me know she knew what I had and didn't have, and that she watched me closely and was paying attention. You're right. You can use it, I told her. No. You're the one who has had the least sleep. You sleep first. I'll give you... She touched my hand to check my watch. 
It's 8.30. I'll give you five hours to rest until 1.30 a.m. You sleep and I'll watch. At 1.30, I'll sleep and you'll watch, Chiasa proposed. I thought about it. Sleep was weighing down on me. My body was threatening rebellion if my brain wouldn't agree. I, I told her. She pulled my sleeping bag out for me and laid it on the slanted roof. I lay down and she zipped it up. I pulled my hoodie over my head and lying there, I had my eyes on Chiasa still. She pulled her bow to her front, unzipped her case and lifted out two arrows. She laid them at her feet. She turned, watching me, watching her. You can't even trust me enough to close your eyes, comrade, she asked softly. I'll recite one of Akimi's poems for you. It was so clever, I memorized it in English. Besides, you have no choice but to listen to me now. Your eyes are heavy, and even you, Ryoshi, must rest. Facing the stars, Chiasa slowly spoke. Akimi's father was called to the school for a teacher's conference after Akimi wrote this poem for her Japanese literature class. It's titled, The Japanese. We are quiet people, but our thoughts are very heavy. Other people are living in the outside world while we are living inside our own minds. In our world, for the most part, there is only us, people who live and look like us and believe and do the same as us. Anyone outside of our realm, we call them gaijin, meaning foreigner. We are famous for our eyes, our art, and our orderliness. We are masters and misses of details. No one can invent rules like we do, and no other people are more loyal to the rules they invent. We obey while others boast, we whisper. While others strut, we bow. We would rather all of us do the same thing wrong than be the only one who does something right all alone by Akimi Nakamura. So fucking true, Chiasa murmured. Now you know what she was thinking before she left for New York and met Mayonaka, she said, turning to check if I had fallen into a sleep. I was about to, but not yet. Still no trust, she whispered. You have a lot to learn, You have a lot to learn, Ryoshi. There are girl soldiers. Female ninjas are called kuniochi. And ninjutsu is the art of invisibility. And tomorrow, I'll be your invisible soldier. You'll see, she said softly. I slept. When I awoke, I could not move. It was a temporary paralysis and a very 
warm place and the comfortable position. I was stuffed inside a skin casing like a beef sausage. Maybe I wasn't really awake. Maybe I was bugging. She was fully dressed and tightly zipped into my sleeping bag beside me, our bodies back to back, me facing east and she facing west, asleep on the side of the bag with a zipper. To turn around would be to reveal myself, or at least my physical reaction, so I didn't. Instead, I decided to concentrate on something that would bring my nature down. Minutes later, I shifted and reached over her, but my weight pressing against her body made her awaken. You were right, she said softly. The temperature dropped a lot. Don't worry, though. This is a strategic position. I needed your body heat. Then she unzipped the bag, and the morning cold air rushed in, and all the warm heat escaped as she removed herself. She gathered her few things as I wrapped the sleeping bag and organized my backpack. As she dropped down the hatch, threw the roof into the hay and moved aside, I handed her my backpack then did the same. We were silent with each other. Only the dairy cows spoke. They were discussing the two strangers, their bloated tits, the property owner, and the hired hands. Through the darkness, only their eyes flashed any light. You better run, one mama cow said to me. You've got less than ten minutes. We bolted. Ryoshi, wake up, Chiasa's voice said. It's 4 a.m. We gotta move. I looked around. It was only myself zipped into my sleeping bag. I paused, shook myself, ran my hand over my Caesar cut and then my face. Shake it off, comrade, she said. I gave you eight long hours. You should be brand new. And she smiled, her gray eyes flashing in the residue of the moonlight. Pretty as a puma, I thought to myself. Then I laughed at myself for that crazy-ass dream. Minutes later, we were outside the barn. Chiasa was running in place in the morning dark. I had my pen light on the map as I tried to figure out the directions while shrouded in darkness. I checked my compass. Okay, I got it. We'll head this way, I said. She nodded, her bow bouncing on her back as she jogged in place. You coming? I asked her. I'm doing two things. I'm sending my vibration through the ground. That's how the snakes listen. Since I'm warning them, they'll appreciate it and move out of our path. And I'm raising my body temperature. There's a real chill out here. As we walked, I used only my pen light. Chiasa had a small flashlight, but the glare it cast would have been too much. So she kept it in her waist pack. The morning dew splashed wet stains on our Tims as we moved through the grass, both bundled in our hoodies. Chiasa had converted Hazuken, which had been a face mask, a curtain, a blanket, and a pillow so far, into a scarf to warm her neck and throat. Did you hear that? Listen, she said. That means there's a road. It's coming from over there, I said. We can cut across the cornfields, she suggested. We jogged straight through a mile of organized young cornstalks. 
happy to reach the black tar of a road, and with the hint of a sun about to rise, we both drank from my water canteen and ate leftover onigari rice triangles with seaweed wraps and cooked fish flakes inside. Let's break up, Chiasa said suddenly as we finished up. I looked at her for meaning. There's only four miles remaining. It would be better from here on if we pretended not to know one another. After you handle your business, we'll meet up at sunset. You can introduce me to everyone since you're the only one that knows each of us. We can break the fast together, all of us. The sun's up now. I'm good, she smiled. I looked around. I looked up and down the road. There was no one. Whatever vehicle we had heard before was long gone. Her breakup suggestion was sinking in, yet I didn't want to break up and leave her all alone. Sensing my reluctance, Chiasa said, let's go over our scenario for the sake of planning. There's Makoto, the security guy who works for Nakamura. Shata, who I know from her diary, is like an older brother to Akimi. You say that there's an Ichiro. I don't know anything about him. My mind flashed back to his face. Ichiro was Ikimi's older cousin, who had been sent to get Ikimi from me once. I was working the Ghazali's wedding with Uma and our company. Akimi and her young cousin Shachiko, a.k.a. Sachi, were there with me. After my work at the wedding finished, as I was putting Uma and Akimi into our car service, Ichiro appeared, standing in the dark shade beneath a tree with an unwelcoming glare and stance like he wanted to get at me. I had my hand on my steel, but no real enough reason to use it on him. Akimi wasn't my wife yet, and he and she were blood-related, so I let him take her home to her peeps. Ichiro never spoke one word to me, not a greeting or acknowledgement, and definitely not a thank you for caring for both of his girl cousins and cooperating with his efforts. All the while, I told myself, I'll marry her, and then no one will be allowed to take her or call her back, blood or no blood. Ichiro, Ichiro is Akimi's cousin, I said solemnly. He's a disrespectful dude, I added. Are there any others who could be at this property? I mean, aside from Jasna and Akimi's grandmother? Chiasa was checking and double-checking. You don't need to worry about none of them. I got them, I assured her. So, we agree then, Chiasa asked me. From this point on, I'm invisible. You don't see me, don't know me, nothing, she pushed confidently. Nah, you stay with me, I told her. How else will I find you? How will I know if you're all right? Okay, then, we can walk separately to the property. The exact point that we split up is where we'll agree to meet up at 3 o'clock today. That should give you enough time, right? And at 3, the sun will still be blazing. No problem, she pushed. You got it, I told her. The sun was up, solidly now. I began to move as though I were alone. Chiasa was invisible, even though she was a short distance behind me, on the opposite side of the road.